travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Singapore may look small, and geographically speaking it is, but this tiny island city-state is jam-packed with a myriad of things to do, see, buy, and devour. The sleek and efficient public transportation system makes zipping around a breeze, allowing you more time to dip your toes into this melting pot of cultures, religions, food, and architecture. That's an excerpt from an article by today's guest, Ria de Jong, about the Lion City, otherwise known as Singapore, the smallest and southernmost country on mainland Asia, which we'll talk about on this episode of Talk Travel Asia. I'm Trevor Ranges in Siem Reap, Cambodia, and joining me again this week is Scott Coates in Bangkok, Thailand. How are you doing, Scott? Aloha, Trevor. I'm doing real well. Um, yeah, I'm just excited that we're going to kind of dive into Singapore. I think we've mentioned it in a lot of shows, some about just travel stories. I think it was on a beer episode. It was on a bar episode. But it really does deserve its own episode. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of surprising that we didn't talk about Singapore yet, just because, I mean, it's a major city. It's uh, got a lot of interesting things to do uh, from a tourist perspective. And, uh, and your wife's from Singapore, which... Uh, shows the character of the Singaporean people. Yeah, I am married to a Singaporean. It's like the person. I liked it so much, I bought the company. But, uh, <laughs> you know, one thing that always has amazed me about Singapore is kind of the Singapore story. And I think it's only something like uh, 55 years old. And if you look at it compared to any other country in Southeast Asia, it is light years ahead. And, you know, so when they got you know, allowed to be free from Malaysia or kicked out, depending on the story version you hear, their leaders basically weren't overly corrupt or anything. And they they set out to plan civil society. I love that in the 70s, they actually sent a delegation to cities. One of the cities they went to was Phnom Penh to see how to build a modern city. So they looked at different cities. They looked at examples. Everything that has happened in Singapore is very, very deliberate. But if you look at it, it is, again, light years ahead of any other Southeast Asian city or country it's almost no corruption. And, and that's a very deliberate thing that I think is real anomaly in this part of the world and admirable. Yeah. You know, I did a little research on Wikipedia before, and I didn't actually know that it was founded by Sir Stamford Raffles as a trading post. I, I knew that the, the Raffles Hotel had originated there, um, but I didn't know that, that, that Sir Raffles was uh, kind of the city's founder. But then I did know that it gained independence quite late. And uh, it was 1963, I read here, that ah, okay. that it became a part of the Federation of Malaysia and then got kicked out, apparently. I didn't know that story either. They, they, they got kicked out of this federation and didn't become their own country until the 1960s, which is, is quite early, you know? And then it's almost a benefit to have started at that point. And then, like you said, to have planned something because uh, that was a time of great growth in the region and they've done really well in, in developing this modern city. 
Yeah, indeed. It's it's quite a story. And Lee Kuan Yew is sort of the first prime minister. He died a handful of years ago. And uh, I really recommend his books on Singapore. And uh, a bit more that you found on Wikipedia. I mean, it's at the southern tip of the Malay Peninsula, bordering the Straits of Malacca on the west, the Rayo Islands of Indonesia to the south, and the South China Sea to the east. Uh, it has about 5.7 million people. It has one main island where most things are, but then 63 little satellite islands and islets, one outline islet. And this country has actually gotten 25% bigger since independence because they've done so much land reclamation in that city. And it has the second or third greatest population density in the world, depending on what your source is. But it also has four official languages, English, Malay, Mandarin, Chinese, and, and Tamil, and, and sort of English is the day-to-day. -day. So it's it's a real anomaly. I keep using that word. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that it's it's like this melting pot. And, and you know, from my understanding and, and my experience there, you know, starting as a British colony and then becoming a part of this Malayan federation and having these Chinese traders and, and the Tamil populations and, and balancing all of these and creating this multicultural society that is something that can be enjoyed from a tourist perspective, whether it's from like the building's architecture or the Singaporean food um, to the art. There's a lot of different fascinating ways, I think, that this history can be experienced as well. Yeah, and from someone that's been there, I mean, there is the the history of the country, but the, what it is, is again, I'm going to go back to it, is amazing. I mean, it doesn't have really many natural resources. It imports, you know, almost all food products, but it's become one of the four, the main Asian tiger. It has the second highest GDP per capita in the world. It's a major financial center, major shipping hub. And it's consistently also ranked one of the more expensive, if not the most expensive city to live in the world. But they have one of the highest standards of education, healthcare, quality of life, personal safety, accessibility to housing with a homeownership rate of actually 91% and has one of the world's longest life expectancy. So to do that in a short period of time, it's absolutely incredible. So I was there like half of Singapore's history ago, almost when I, I first traveled to Singapore in, mm. in 1996. And back then, it had quite a different reputation. You know, back then, that, uh, that American kid had done some graffiti on something and, and he was caned, you know, they really the only reason I'd ever even heard right. of Singapore is because this kid got caned. And that was right before I was headed there as a, as a 25 year old backpacker. What was your first uh, impression of Singapore? How did you hear about it? And, and when did you first visit? You know, it might have been the caning. I knew of it because I had a Dassault ski jacket that was made there. And I, I just knew it, but I didn't know about it. But I remember that caning. And I think I first went in 1995 on a one year trip. So you could stop at all these places on my way to Australia. And I got off, I think, for three days in Singapore. And I would have been 20 years old at the time. Uh, after that, once I settled in Thailand, I went many times on business. And then, as we've talked about on other episodes, is I'm married to a Singaporean. And so I've been back now to visit her family, who's my family. I actually have had Chinese New Year's with my parents and then all these Chinese Singaporeans, which is really neat that I have an extensive family that are Chinese Singaporeans. So um, it was the last place I went before COVID, and I've not been to any other country since then. So it's a place that's, hey, I have La Familia in Singapore. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. I, so you were there just right before I was there. I, I'm pretty sure it was still 96. One of the things, well, okay, so that guy got beat. Yeah. So when I was traveling with some backpackers from Malaysia, and we had left our backpacks at the Malaysian train station for a few hours while we were waiting for our bus or train or whatever. And uh, I remember 
I talked these guys into like, we should really just check our bags and unpack everything and make sure nobody put some drugs in there to use us as mules. Otherwise, you know, we figured we'd spend the rest of our lives in jail in Singapore for something we didn't do. And then when I got there, I, the, the funniest thing was I went to the movies. I saw the cable guy with Jim Carrey in the theater in Singapore. And it was the first time I'd gone to the movies where there was assigned seating. And I was like, whoa, you got to sit. And they got to sit in the seat that they tell you to at the movies too. And now I know like everywhere in Asia, there's assigned seating at the movies. But that was the first time. And I thought it was like a Singaporean thing. Yeah, pretty wild. My early memories were just wandering a reasonably big sized city. And I think I was just trying to still get used to being in Asia. So I don't actually have that many memories of then. But you know, it's a place that I used to view as boring. And mm. now I, I think I could definitely live there. I quite quite like it. Yeah, well, you know, I used to do stories uh, for magazines and newspapers when I did visa runs, when I had to leave Bangkok for whatever reason. In Singapore, you could just fly down to Singapore and you don't need a visa to go in there and you could just pop in and out, right? But I pitched a story to Time Magazine about how Singapore had rebranded itself. This was in like, I don't know, like 2008. I'd say. So quite a while after that first visit. And, you know, since 1996 to 2008, Singapore had become like this kind of the fun capital of Southeast Asia, almost there was gambling, the, the bars are open 24 hours, like they had Formula One races, they had amusement parks, and they'd really done this amazing job to, to build the city that would attract people from all over the world to live there and do their business there, because it, it was this really cool, fun place to live. So Time agreed to to let me go down there and write that story. And I went down with my friend Jason Simmerl, and he and I spent several days doing research on how fun Singapore could be, which which was very fun. But in the end, something out of my control happened, and I wasn't able to do the story. And, and uh, I spent a lot of money doing that research for a, a piece I, I never published. But, you know, I really got to experience all sorts of different sides of Singapore. And uh, I was amazed. It was a really great time. Well, let's bring in our guest and find out exactly how much fun it is. World wanderer and travel writer, particularly of Lonely Planet travel guides, including the Singapore Travel Guide and its sister Pocket Guide, Ria Deong, originally hails from Australia, but currently calls Singapore home and Southeast Asia her backyard. She joins us online today from Singapore. Hey there, Ria. Hi, guys. How's it going? Good. Super Thanks, Ria. Duper. We've never done a full episode on Singapore, strangely, although we've talked about drinking beer there. It's been featured on many a show, but we're happy to have you shed some greater light on it. So I just want to kind of get a bit more about you before we get into Singapore. Sort of what's your background? Can you give us a quick overview and maybe how you ended up there? Well, basically, um, I was born overseas. Um, I'm, I'm Australian, but I was born over in Sri Lanka. My father is Dutch from Holland, and my mother was Australian, and they met in Australia, headed over there. Um, I grew up in Southeast Asia as well in Malaysia before heading back to Australia in about the mid-'80s before my husband and I decided with a work job for him to move over to the Philippines about 11 years ago. And seven years ago since then, we moved to Singapore and have just been discovering this area as much as possible. Did you become a travel writer during your travels before arriving in Singapore or did you start writing about Singapore first? Mainly, actually, I started writing about Singapore first. I'd done quite a bit of stuff in the Philippines um, for kind of magazines that were there. 
I'd actually started off in women's magazines in Australia, writing for Cosmopolitan, so quite a different (laughs) kind of writing. But um, I did actually manage to work at Cosmopolitan Bride magazine, which had a amazing honeymoon section, which Mm. is whenever I traveled somewhere, I would often get to go and stay somewhere very luxurious and very fun. And that's kind of how I started getting into the actual travel industry. Gotcha. So what was the actual first sort of published travel guide that you did? Southeast Asia on a shoestring, um, which I covered the Singapore part and also over the border from Singapore, you can actually drive. Um, We've got two causeways that lead directly into Malaysia. And the Mm -hmm. town there is um, Johor Bahru. And we cover that in the Singapore kind of area as well, uh, just because I think it's easier. So that was my first one. And then I kind of went head straight in to do the full Singapore guide for the country, city, nation, as we call it. Yeah. And I saw online that the Singapore Lonely Planet Guide was currently in its 12th edition. So did you write the first one and, and pretty much all of the, the issues? No, <laughs> no not since <laughs> I think that one's been going probably for uh, maybe longer than I've been in Asia. But I've done, I think it was the last two pocket guides, the last city guide, um, the last two Asia on a shoestrings. I think sadly, one of them has been caught up now in kind of the COVID travel guide holding pattern, but I think that one's going to come out next year. So I know this is going to be a difficult question, but now we're going to kind of start at the beginning of this country, city, state, island, nation. You've lived in a few places in the region. So can you kind of tell us a few things that make Singapore, Singapore? Like what is it? Asia can seem really daunting, um, particularly for people who are coming traveling and may not have experienced kind of one of the big things I find when you go to Asia is how hectic it is. Um, It's often the cities are really big. People live very close together. Often they're kind of very family orientated. And obviously the language can also be quite hard to get around if you're not from these areas. I think Singapore kind of gives a bit of a It's a really nice kind of step. Some people call it like Asia light or Disneyland of Asia because English is very widely spoken here. It is one of the main languages. So that makes it really easy. It also gives you quite a lot of different cultures in one little place, but it is also very efficient and very clean and very safe. Okay, so that's really interesting. And imagining if we've been in, say, Bangkok or Hong Kong or someone's been in Hanoi, but they haven't been to Singapore. Like what's going to be the distinct difference that when they end up in Singapore, they're going to go, oh, wow, this is really different than any of these other Southeast Asian cities I've been to. I think one of probably the big things is the architecture in Singapore. We've got obviously a lot of like the heritage, the old Peranakan, um, Straits Chinese. You've got all these beautiful shop houses, amazing temples from all different types of religions, from all the Indian religions and Chinese. But you've got these incredible structures like many people would obviously think as soon as they think of Singapore of Marina Bay Sands, which is Mm -hmm. an architectural wonder. And they've just had, I think about two years ago, Jewel at Changi Airport opened, which has one of the world's largest indoor free fall waterfall, which Mm. is incredible. It's 
I would say that like compared to a lot of other Asian nations, it's really the people in Singapore that make quite a big difference. You'll find taxi drivers, I think because English is very easily well-spoken language here, taxi drivers will always want to tell you exactly where you should be going, where you should eat. Um, People want to talk to you when you go to the markets. They're very welcoming to show you all the different types of things that they're selling and things like that. So you could definitely be here and see all the culture and heritage and everything quite very easily because the MRT system here is also, um, which is the train system, is also super quick, super efficient and very inexpensive. Yeah, it's great being able to get around a city quite easily. And it is relatively small. Again, we, we discussed the, the size a little bit in the introduction. But, uh, you know, what's a fair amount of time to pretty much see everything? What are some of the tourist attractions you'd want to see? And uh, would a week, a long weekend be enough? Or would you need a full week to, to see all of those things? People often, I, I feel, always think of Singapore as a bit of a um, stopover destination. It has definitely previously market it itself as that. It was always like, you know, stop in Singapore, Changi Airport, even at, from Changi Airport, you can grab a um, open air buses and do a city tour in like a few hours. But I think really to get a really good sense of Singapore, you would want to stretch a ch- trip to four to five days. Like a week is excellent. You really get out and go p- to places that usually the tourists wouldn't see like we've got um a kampong which is the malay word for village one of the last ones remaining in this area like on an island which you catch the sapna boat out to and you can mountain bike over there and eat seafood by the ocean and you can see malaysia on one side and singapore on the other and you kind of probably wouldn't do that if you were just here for the two days which is what most people would give it i think um Two days, you could definitely do all the colonial, the heritage, the kind of the big stops. So you would want him to be going to the museums down in the colonial district, which is the Asian Civilization Museum, the Art Science Museum. Then the second day, you kind of head out to the neighbourhoods, see the Chinatown, Little India, Kampong Glam. And if you stay the three or four days, you can move out to the next band of areas and go out to the heartlands of Singapore, Geylang, East Coast, and actually see much more of kind of the everyday culture of people living here, opposed to kind of just the business district, which is where most of the big kind of tourist attractions are. Okay. I, I, I like that you've kind of mentioned that it's traditionally this one or two nighter, which I originally knew it as, and I'm married yeah. to a Singaporean, so I've gotten to spend oh. more time there and, and I have a greater appreciation for it. Do you think there's been a deliberate effort made at a national level to, to, to make Singapore more than that, just that stopover? Or do you think that's kind of evolved naturally? I think there's definitely been a big effort by the Singaporean Tourism Board to start trying to get people to stay a lot longer. Singapore has often been a very high conference destination. I know that um, conferences here, they take out Marina Bay Sands. They have huge conference venues and facilities. And those people are often in and out and they don't see anything. And I think particularly Singapore tourism being helped along quite a bit worldwide by the movie Crazy Rich Asians, which was put out a few years ago like as soon as I saw people everybody was when I went home and when I went to see my sister and things people would be like oh my gosh you come from Singapore 
I saw the movie Crazy Rich Asians and mm. I can't wait to go there. It looks amazing. It's so high tech. It's so futuristic. And But then it looks like it's also got a heap of culture. So I believe that Singapore tourism has put a lot of effort in kind of getting off that kind of train that they've done to up people staying here with the tourism dollars. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it was always sort of my position that Singapore had made a big effort to try and attract people to live there, to move there and, and to make it this international cosmopolitan city. So it would seem that a lot of those things that they would like to appeal to people like yourselves to come and live there, um, they would also want other visitors to, to experience. So what are some of those things, like some of your favorite things that many visitors might not necessarily think of doing, but like as someone who's been lured there to live there, you know, um, wh what would people really enjoy? One of the big things Singapore is the gardens. Everything here is very green. The temperature is pretty much the same all year round. So I find there's a lot of kind of off the track trails. They've got, they're redoing currently the rail corridor, which was the original railway that came down from Malaysia all the way down into the CBD area of Singapore. I think the train stopped about 10, 15 years ago on that. And they have now been kind of trying to turn it into something a bit like New York's Highline Walk. And you can do that whole trail and you kind of walk in jungles and then pop up in the middle of HDB areas, which is the housing board development areas. And then all of a sudden you're walking next to huge architecturally designed condominium buildings and then you're back in the jungle so getting out into nature which is most people will obviously go and see gardens by the bay which is incredible and the singapore botanic gardens but i think finding out actually the pockets of kind of more the wilderness is one of the greatest things here that i've found to do that's a great thing to highlight as a favorite in a city state that is sort of thought of, but is legitimately very small. But, you know, from my experience there too, I've encountered a lot of opportunities to get into nature quick. One of the things that the city is known for is being very expensive, but I'm wondering, can somebody on a bit of a budget also have a fun time there? Or if you go to Singapore, are you having to shell out hundreds and hundreds of dollars per day? Oh, no, I think Singapore definitely gets a reputation of being very expensive. And basically what they try to do is they try to keep taxes low for everyday Singaporeans and then they tax really high on what they class as luxury items. So things like cars are really horrifically expensive here. If you want to drive a car, that's going to cost you, I think, I think currently the kind of you get a license to drive for 10 years and that's currently sitting at about $40,000 on top of the cost of your car. And then Alcohol is also highly taxed, so drinking can be quite expensive. <laughs> but okay. if you're on a budget, you know, there are plenty of amazing and really funky um, places to stay. There's a lot of backpackers that have all kind of, you know, become quite inherited shop houses and things like that. And that'll set you back probably about $35 a night. And then the food in Singapore, if you want to eat at a high-end restaurant is going to be probably as expensive as it would be in um, any other major cities. But the greatest one here is the Hawker's Centres, which are all over the island. And you can pick up meals there for 
two, three dollars. And it'll be made by someone usually who has been like just perfecting if I'm not sure if there's so many men at hawker centers in a lot of Asian places, like there's markets. But these particular places, you'll have 30, 40 different hawkers, which are the people making the food, and they have perfected one or two recipes. And you can just go around, try a bit of this, try a bit of that, and a whole meal, and including a beer, actually, a beer is not expensive in a hawker center, um, will probably set you back about $8, $10. So doing those things, also museums are not expensive. There's lots of walking tours, not expensive. They've tried to keep all of those things down. It's just if you start kind of wanting to live here, things really start punching <laughs> you in the wallet. Okay, cool. Okay, yeah, that's good to know. Um, you know, I, I visited Singapore a number of times as well, and you mentioned the food. So that's clearly something that is famous in Singapore. There's their street food and their, these hawker stalls and stuff. Now, the prices that you mentioned as cheap are, are, are expensive to me being in Cambodia. But, yeah. uh, you know, as a, as a traveler, it's good to know that you could find, you know, a relatively inexpensive hotel. But then if your food costs are relatively modest and you're eating some of the best food in the world, then you have a little bit more discretionary income to splash out a bit. So what do you think those things that are worth splashing out on are? I would definitely say something worth splashing out on is a sunset drink at one of like the rooftop bars in Singapore. A lot of people like to go to Marina Bay Sands for a drink and look back at the city, but I always kind of direct people to a few other bars that are in that area, but a bit further back or to the side. One of them is level 33, which has the highest craft brewery in Asia. Uh, and it's Ooh, obviously agreed. on level 33 of a very tall building. And it looks out at Marina Bay and they'll have a happy hour that goes till about 7.30. So you can probably head up there for a drink and it'll cost you about $25 to $30. And I you can be there that. for a few hours and you get an amazing view. And I think that that's definitely something that people should have a little bit of a splurge on. Look, I want to go back to food for a second. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can tell us about the ethnic mix, like the different peoples that live and call Singapore home. And then what a couple of those highlight dishes are that you can get, because I've been to lots of hawker centers there and it's a unique place and that you really can get so many different cultural foods. Is that right? Yeah, that's definitely right. Definitely in particular areas in little India, you'll get obviously a much more kind of higher mix of Indian fare at the Hawkers, but at any single one, you'll get a mixture of everything. So Singapore is uh, made up of quite a large, there's a large Chinese population and then the Indian population. Then you have like a subculture, I think it's the Peranicans who are basically the original people from Singapore who often immigrants married local women who are mainly Malay and they've started up a different little subculture of Peranicans. And but you can go to these hawker centers and probably oh gosh, the main dishes. Oh my goodness. Um one of the big ones would be satay. So you'll go to some and you can smell the smoke from two, three streets away of all the satay being cooked on the open flames. 
you'll go there, you'll get the chili crab, they'll have all the mud crabs, so you can pick which weight you want. One of the big things I do tell people, one of the most important things when you go to Singapore and you go to a, a hawker centre is that you have to learn to chop your seat. So you get a packet of tissues, which you will buy, and you go and you've got oh. to find your seat first. And you just basically put your packet of tissues on the table at your actual seat and no one will right. sit there. It's very important <laughs> because otherwise you're kind of wandering around with a tray full of food with nowhere to sit. And it's a kind of cultural thing. People will not go anywhere near your choked seat. But I think we've got the chili crab, you've got the satay, you've got all types of different noodles, luxes, uh, all the Indian marabak, pratas. It's just an absolute mixture of kind of foods from the area. And it's become actually so famous that I last year, I think in December last year, it was actually put on the UNESCO list of intangible cultural assets. So that was kind of a big thing for Singapore to get on that list by recognising that hawker culture. We've also got, uh, you know, a lot of the hawkers are really um, are starting to age now and you've got this whole new generation coming up. So a lot of people who have worked in really amazing kitchens here are now stepping out of those high restaurant, high-end restaurant kitchens and coming into hawker centres and taking up a stall and creating their own signature dishes that then people will queue. Singaporeans do love to queue. They'll queue for a lot of things. And if they always say, I think, if you go to a hawker centre and there's a long queue, it's either the food is very good or it's very cheap. But usually it's very good. Hopefully both. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Moving over to a subject that I typically bring up, Singapore has a beach. I've been to a big beach party in Singapore, and uh, it was quite fun. Uh, Can you tell oh, yeah. our listeners a little bit about Sentosa and what the scene has been like there in, in recent years? Because I haven't been in a while. Sentosa is called the Island of Fun, <laughs> and um, it is definitely a bit of a playground for Singapore. It, well, definitely at the moment makes you feel like you're kind of getting away from the CBD. It's got beach bars. Uh, there's a lot of restaurants down there that are catering to all to, like all different la layers of society. So you've got places that are really cheap and just really fun and then super high end. You've got the W Hotel that does incredible parties. The Shangri-La does Zook Out, which is a big nightclub here that do, they take out I think twice a year and do a huge beach party there. So it's a place you can go and swim in the ocean, but it's definitely like a sunset spot, I'd say. Like you go down, have a bit of a sun sunset drink, the cool breeze, and there's often a lot of good people watching and lots of people exercising and just generally having quite a bit of fun down there. You've been really descriptive and shared some very interesting things, but I'm wondering, you know, I'm an expat, Trevor's an expat. What is it that you kind of really dig about Singapore that keeps you there on a personal level? Uh, for us, it's definitely being, we ca we came from the Philippines before this and we, we loved it there. Uh, but we found it kind of quite difficult to get around. Um, my husband works in construction and an opportunity came up here and we came and we just love that it's a very easy city to live in. It's easy to get around. It's safe. It's clean. It's got 
plenty of things to do on a daily basis, but then it's also just such a great stepping stone to the rest of Asia. Changi Airport is the ninth year it's been the best in the world. You can go, we often only turn up 45 minutes before an international flight because it is so efficient. You can basically just walk straight in. Planes are going everywhere. You can be in Indonesia in an hour and a half. You can be back up into Thailand in about, again, an hour and a half. I think it's to Phuket, 45 minutes to KL. And we've definitely taken advantage of that in previous years to jump kind of everywhere for just two or three nights, but then come back to somewhere that it is just, it makes traveling super efficient from here. That's interesting. That's kind of the same way I felt about Bangkok, just being geographically centrally located. And for yeah. me, I liked Singapore because I didn't need, as an American, I don't need a visa for Singapore. I can just jump on a flight to Singapore and I get a two-week visa. I think it was 14 days they give us, maybe. I think it might be 30 days. Yeah, they're, they're, but it was great. trying to keep like, you here for a while. Mm. <laughs> Please stay longer. <laughs> So I've always enjoyed visiting. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm more of the explore myself type, but, uh, the pocket guide sounds like a great thing for a city just because, uh, when you're out and about and, and just to have the maps and whatnot, right. Would, would be really useful. So you're still writing about Singapore. Uh, do you have any projects lined up or what's going yeah, on? Yeah. Currently I've just done a couple of extra bits for the new guides that are coming out. We're just updating things as they change and I've been doing a couple of ones for the for cruising magazines as well. The lack of being able to travel has definitely kind of made me a little bit more kind of not doing as much as I would usually be doing. Uh, how can people learn more about Ria and what you're up to? Do you, you have the Instagram going or the Twitter or anything? Yeah, I've, I'm on Instagram. It's at Ria underscore at transit. And I've just kind of taken... We've just taken some time and I've just started that back up again because I did kind of have the corona coaster of going a bit kind of head in the sand for a while, but we're coming through that and we're moving forwards. Yeah, and we'll put links to those on the show. I have the Ria in Transit on Instagram and links to both the Lonely Planet Pocket Singapore and Lonely Planet Singapore Travel Guides. So we thank you for coming on and sharing some of your insight. You reminded me of the chili crab, which I definitely think is worth splashing out on as well. Yeah, definitely the Hawker Centers is definitely the place to head to first. I think that that is the number one place to go. Thanks for making time for us, Ria. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, Scott. That was uh, pretty interesting because I haven't been to Singapore in a few years, and she kind of uh, sparked my interest once again. Uh, Even just going with the gardens and architecture is one of the earliest things that she loved about the city. Um, reminded me that like, yeah, you know, it does stand out uh, distinctively compared to other cities in the region. Yeah, the architecture is a pretty good reason to go. I mean, you can see everything from sort of Indian style buildings to some of arguably the nicest shop houses almost in Southeast Asia. They have some really beautiful ones. There are certain areas that have been completely redone and and they've kept them in the original state. And then they do have some world-class gardens uh, to visit there, both older traditional ones and then modern takes like gardens by the bay. So just bays, gardens, buildings, that is a a reason on its own to go. And I really like that she mentioned, you know, getting out into nature and and kind of the jungle and pathways because it has an incredibly extensive 
trail network or path network. So, you know, a few years ago, I probably wouldn't have say taken a taxi 10 kilometers to go on like a nature trail maybe, but now I think I would do that back and forth. And there's lots of that kind of stuff in Singapore. Yeah. You know, I think because people think of Singapore as this big modern city and it does have the second highest population density on earth, but like, like Hong Kong similarly has like these green spaces on these islands and and Singapore has a lot of green space. I mean, you saw the otters, didn't you? I saw this video of of otters that live like in a canal and and, and you saw them one time, didn't you? I don't remember the otters, but I may have. And uh, I've seen pictures Uh, of the otters. I know the otters of which you speak. They're like in the city and the, and the canals. So like, again, Singapore is incredibly clean but the greenness and like, you know, there's areas of the city, there's like some hilltop. It has topography that like Bangkok doesn't, let's say, because Bangkok's such a flat city and, and kind of having these hills and having these green spaces and having a beach, which she didn't seem enthused about. Of course, you know, being from the Australia, which has some of the most gorgeous beaches on earth, I could see how mm-hmm. like Sentosa might not live up, but you know, it's pretty cool down there going to pool beach parties at the W hotel or, or at the Shangri-La like that's like some world-class fun for sure or just go to the beach for half a day hey let's go to the <laughs> beach for half our day and you go there and you sit in the sand you swim and it does have a bit of everything you could literally have a day at the beach you could have a day of super modern city colonial stuff you could eat Chinese food you could eat Malay food you could eat Tamil Indian food you could go to a jungle setting so there really is legit enough for five six days like you know, of course, we always want to see lots and go tons of places. So, hey, I'm only going to do Singapore for two days. But it's a classic example of like spend more time and slow down. And you can have an absolutely fantastic five days, like she said. Yeah, again, the price is going to run you a little yep. bit more than your average trip. Uh, but, you know, knowing that the food's not that expensive and that you're pretty much always going to get really good food, you know, you would have to balance uh, your time between the splashing out. Because, again, she said the museums aren't that much. But I went to the museum at the Marina Bay Sands, mm. and it was spectacular. I mean, world class. They had Egyptian mummies on display oh, wow. as part of a, a visiting display. And then they had this Lego. They had, like, Lego had taken over half of it and was like it's unbelievable then we went to the disco underneath at the Mm. marina bay there and we five of us each chipped in a hundred dollars to buy a bottle of vodka as our admission a hundred dollars each yeah to buy a bottle and i think we ended up buying two because we just stayed and you know it was an experience you know so sometimes there's things you got to splash out on i mean we didn't talk about universal studios i don't know if anybody visiting would want to go on roller coasters while there i i I might because i enjoy roller coasters Mm -hmm. but uh you know we didn't touch on so many things i think that singapore has to offer as like this big world-class city that uh you know you could just explore for for a week yeah and another thing we kind of touched on it is pretty inexpensive and easy to get around. Like the transport system, the underground is fantastically cheap. You can get it right to or from the airport. The buses are as you know clean and efficient as any bus anywhere in the world. And taxis are reasonably inexpensive. And the thing that's nice there is you rarely have to go any really further than say 10 kilometers. So you're going to be able to jump in a taxi and probably not exceed like 10 USD, 15 sing for sure. I've And, and that's a nice thing when you're in a city and you're tired. And you just think, oh, I just want to get to that thing or I just want to get back and to be able to jump in a taxi and it not kill your wallet $10. But that's something I really like there, too. 
Yeah, so I, I miss it. Uh, I wish I could get back there again. Of course, uh, Bangkok would be higher on my list just because uh, I do love Thai food and I, I miss you and your lovely Singaporean wife. Uh, so Thanks. maybe we'll all go to Singapore and hang out again together. I don't know if you and I have actually hung out in Singapore. I've, I've definitely gone to Wine Connection with Erica back in the day. Yeah, no, you and I have never been there. But uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember, please support the show. Number one, like, give us a positive review wherever you're listening to this. And the other one would be, please go to patreon.com, search the name of the show, and sponsor us for as little as a couple dollars a month or upwards as you see fit. Patrons get a little something special in between every one of the regular episodes. Could be a short little episode. Sometimes it's videos, but it helps Trevor and I cover the costs and keep doing this. And we want to thank one of our patrons, Tomoko. Thank you very much, Tomoko-san. So Trevor, why don't you wrap this thing up? Yeah. Hey, thanks, Scott. Thanks again, Ria. And thank you, Tomoko. Uh, and to all of our listeners, thanks for tuning in. And we'll be back in two weeks uh, with some more travel insight. Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon. Hey, Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall in Cortana?